Welcome to Real, Raw, Relatable, the podcast that brings you stories and experiences from entrepreneurs and business leaders. And now, here's your host, Zachary Ellis. All right. Well, James, thanks for taking the time to meet with me today. Where you at? I'm in Cabo, brother. Hanging out at our Cabo house and surviving uh, the similar heat you guys are in Texas. Just a little more humid, maybe. So I saw yesterday it was like 19 straight days of 100 plus. And I also saw that um, it was the hottest day in the history of the world. So they averaged all the temperatures together. So uh, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Well, hey, you're having more fun than I am here at the office. But uh, <laughs> definitely glad you you took some time, especially time when you're in Cabo to uh, meet with me and, and uh you know, obviously, this podcast is focused around entrepreneurship, sales, marketing. Obviously, it seems like everybody has a podcast now, but uh, mine, I wanted to, to add that little bit of uh, difference to it where we're sharing, you know, stories that both you and I have shared through the entrepreneurship journey, where we got started, how we got started, ideas, stuff like that. So um, I know you've, you've, you've said it a thousand times, and I thought to myself, I said, man, do I really want to ask him, tell us about where you grew up and where you were born and all that, but uh, I'll let you go through it. Sure, it's 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 a cute little story. Uh, born to two seventeen-year-old uh, high school students that got a little too friendly, uh, a little too early in life. Uh, not homeless, but almost homeless. So the local electrical shop hired my dad as an apprentice and let us stay in their little house behind the, the shack, and and uh, kind of grew up there for a few years, and have some fond memories of my mom painting the bathroom walls with different little things to keep us happy. Uh, moved into our first house when I was about two and a half. It was a $9,000 house, uh, about 1,200 square feet. And so let's begin my journey through life and um, discovered uh, that if I wanted anything extra other than food on the table, I had to earn it myself. Learned that pretty early in life. And so I started making potholders and selling them at the local church bazaars and did that long enough to be able to go down to the local hardware store and buy a, a lawnmower and a rake and started the James Webb lawnmower service at, at I think I was about nine years old. So kind of did that and worked my way through different things and ended up in the printing business, uh, worked full time through high school as a print press operator. And, um, that's kind of the short version of it. I had two little brothers that came along. So you're born in Mississippi, Laurel, Mississippi. For those of you that don't know where Laurel is, it's a small town. I've been there a few times. The last time I was there um, was November of last year, and uh, we took the one flight from Dallas into Hattiesburg and uh, couldn't get a flight back out the next day. It was supposed to be a one-day turnaround, and it was it was a nightmare. It ended up being three days before I was back home. <laughs> oh, my Lord. But uh, so grew up in Mississippi, obviously, you know, kind of being able to start your own company. So you're able to build potholders, sell them, so on and so forth. What was what was your first job that you got as a teenager early uh, in your 20s? Yeah, my first real job after kind of you go the the potholder, the, the raking and mowing yards to the newspaper route. And finally, uh, I got involved in the, the, the local printing business. Uh, I think Kinko's you know, 50 years ago. And uh, uh, 
started out delivering packages at 13. I had my own car at 13. Uh, in law, you can do that. You probably can't do that a lot of other places. No, and uh, uh, just kind of worked my way through the printing industry. And, and when I was a senior in high school, I was their head pressman. So I worked, uh, went to school from 8 to 12, and then after school, went to work. And it was six to eight hours a day, and usually on Saturdays. Uh, and, and, you know, listen, I had a car. I had some money in my pocket. Uh, I was in pretty good shape for me at that time. Yeah. Life is good. You're rolling around at 13 with a with some money. You're good. In a lot yeah. better position. A lot of kids now they're they're texting on their phone on the couch eating potato chips. So <laughs> I had no idea about video games or any of that. The, the closest thing I can come to that is watching Three Stooges and Popeye every morning. So that's as close as I got to that. So how long did you spend in the uh, in the printing business? So so I was in the printing business through high school, and then I went to the local junior college. I was fortunate enough to to sing in the church choir, so my choir director got me a scholarship. So that was a $250 scholarship, and then I had to come up with the other $250, and we were on a quarterly system then. Uh, and I had one of my um, first you know, experiences that just kind of defined my resilience. I was about to start uh, junior college, and... Um, Woke up one morning with blood all over the pillow and three days later in intensive care unit. And I had uh, two benign brain tumors that were eating through the dura of my brain and almost died. So I uh, survived that, missed uh, the first quarter of college, and then went back to college and uh, sang in the choir and didn't really know what I was going to do. And, and I think the interesting story was still in the printing business at that point. I uh, was walking through the campus and saw a sign that said, hey, interested in x-ray technology, call this number. And I thought, well, I'm 18 years old. I got a girlfriend. We'll probably get married soon. And uh, uh, I enrolled, well, got accepted in the program and did a, what I call a two-year slave labor program at the hospital where you basically work 60 hours a week for free learning how to be an x-ray tech. I, I was saying, what's the uh, what's the nice word that they uh, label it as now? It's uh... It's not a working interview internship. There you go. Oh, yeah. Internship's a cool word now. Not then. It was slave labor. Uh, uh, and I always laugh about the fact that after I got accepted in the school, the little girl I was dating dumped me. So, I, you know, she had not dumped me. I probably never would have gone this path in my life. It's, it's, it's kind of one of those little tiny moments in life you'd look back on. Yeah. And you say, hey, I'm, I'm kind of glad this one happened. Yeah, because, you know, I stayed with the x-ray program and then uh, I met someone else, uh, got married at, uh, I think I was 19, about to turn 20 when I got married, and uh, finished x-ray tech school, took the night shift in the emergency room. Lots of crazy stories about doing that in a county hospital. Uh, you see all sorts of stuff, but I went back to school in the daytime and got my bachelor's degree. What year was that that you started the uh, x-ray? facility i started x-ray tech school in 1978 graduated in 1980 graduated from uh, my bachelor's degree in 18 months so the latter part of 81 another cute side story the day i graduate i get a call from hospital administration i think i'm in trouble 
Um, I go meet with them and they offer me the director of education job, the head of the radiology program I graduated from 18 months earlier at 21 years of age, uh, had 15 students, seven of them were my age and three of them I went to high school with. So crazy learning management lessons. Yeah, that's, that's a huge responsibility at that age for sure. It was. It was dumped right on me, and I accepted it and, and really enjoyed teaching half the time at the hospital, half the time at the junior college. Um, enjoyed that a lot. Think about doing that again someday. But, but then, you know, life keeps throwing you curveballs and fun things. And, and the second part of the story is sitting in a little house in Laurel, Mississippi with my wife and a Miller pony, if you remember Miller ponies in my hand. And a quarter in the other hand, I flipped it and said, I heads we go to Dallas, tails we go to Atlanta because I need to get a master's degree and do something with my career. And literally the next day, I quit my job, turned in my two-week notice, and in two weeks loaded up a pickup truck and a bass boat and headed to Duncanville, Texas, and slept in the Redbird Mall parking lot for a couple of nights trying to figure out what the heck I'd just done. So these are just little steps in my career. Yeah, for any of those of you that are listening, use the quarter method. I recommend it also. <laughs> that, that's, that's incredible, it. though, to to pick up and and um, you know just completely move. It doesn't matter the city. Show up, not sure of exactly what you're going to do. <clears throat> um, and for some of those that that don't know, uh, James uh, wrote a book here recently, not too long ago. I don't, I don't know what year it was released, but I know it was recently and um, called Redneck Resilience, and that kind of explains some of the story more in depth and. Uh, I know I've seen some of the podcasts, uh, both visual and audio that I've, I've listened to. And it seems like everybody kind of asked about that very early on um, story. So I feel like it's important that we share it here. But uh, we actually met, James and I met through my banker, uh, who is actually right here in Fort Worth. So our office is headquartered in Fort Worth and your place is in, is it McKinney that you're in? We live in Frisco and, and my office is in Plano. Plano, excuse me, I apologize. Yeah, no worries. So offices in Plano. So James and I met each other a couple months ago, and obviously he's been a huge help. Um, you know, as entrepreneurs, I feel like we all kind of find ourselves in that situation where it's asking for advice or we find ourselves in a situation where we're like, hey, probably need to make a phone call about this. So um, what uh, what happened in your transition to entrepreneurship? What what year was it that you decided to, to take the jump? And what was it that kind of influenced you to to make that decision? Yeah, it's actually quite a cute story. So I, I, again, lucked out and landed a job at Louisville, Texas as director of radiology. So at that point, I was the youngest director of a radiology department in the U.S. And this is way before the Internet. So I went to college at night to North Texas State, or now University of North Texas. Graduated and, and really thought I was going to be a hospital administrator. And then this guy walks in the door and introduces himself and says, there's this technology coming out called MRI. Uh, we're going to build a mobile MRI company, and we want you to join us. And I was like, no, I'm going to be a hospital administrator. But I flew to Connecticut to meet with his team, and I did a job interview in a Datsun 240ZX at about 130 miles an hour. And I decided that I would jump into the corporate world uh, of medicine versus the hospital world of medicine. And so took the job. Worked my butt off for three years. We went from uh, two mobile MRIs to 53 mobile MRIs across the country. 
we were the second largest. And then I had one of the bigger shocks in my life. I'm sitting in an office in Dallas overlooking the city. I've got about 300 employees. I'm 30 years old. And the phone rings and they go, Mr. Webb, we've, we've sold the company. And since you have no equity, you're fired. And I was literally fired on the spot and uh, learned a very valuable lesson about equity. And that's really the first time I started thinking about, hey, how do I do this by myself so I don't put myself at risk like this? Now, fortunately, I was somewhat known in the industry at that time. So I got a job within a day or two at another company and bounced through the corporate world, went through a divorce, unfortunately. And then um, sitting in uh, Boca Raton, Florida, for about five years, uh, married Marcia then, got remarried. And uh, a doctor walked up to me from Trinidad and Tobago and said, hey, I'm going back there to uh, become Minister of Health. Would your company bring MRI to Trinidad and Tobago? Because it had not gone out of the United States by that point. It was still pretty new technology. And I knew the company wouldn't do it, but I thought, here's my leap. And so I jumped and uh, uh, opened up MRIs all over the Caribbean and Latin America, about three or four years with just crazy, crazy stories and put my life at risk three or four times and, you know, finally sold that company in 2000. Uh, and, and that's really the, the fun part of the book, telling all those crazy stories. Not not many people you know have been held at gunpoint by the Sandinistas and things like that. So, yeah, it's a crazy road we travel. It is. That's amazing it, it can to, be. to to have that phone call happen and say, "Hey, you don't have a job anymore, and you're just completely lost." Um, that's an incredible feeling. I know I, I talked with a guy last week that um, was let go from his job and unfortunately was a tech company and kind of found himself in that stage of. Uh, hey, we're laying off to reduce the staff, but obviously not anywhere uh, near comparison of saying, hey, you don't have a job you know, anymore at the level that you're at. So um, so you decided to start your own MRI company, which was called Preferred, right? This is, this is prior to Preferred. This was Paradigm Healthcare because I was shifting. So I used the word Paradigm for shifting. Yeah, and Paradigm uh, did that. And we only built about five locations. And there was an international player stepping into the market, had a three-year-old son, had a new baby on the way, about to be born, uh, had three or four pretty dangerous experiences. And I just decided, you know what, it's time to get out of it. And that company had approached me about buying me out. And so, um, you know, we negotiated, accepted their offer. I had a few investors, so, you know, we all made a little money. Not the kind you can quit working, but the kind you can take a breath and okay, what am I going to do next? And that sort of led me down the, the, the bigger path, which was when I invested with two buddies back in a medical imaging center in Dallas. So I'm living in South Florida this time and supposed to be mailbox money, uh, but the checks kept going that way. They never came my way. And uh, so I packed up a uh, three-week-old baby, a three-year-old son, a supportive but pissed-off wife, and I moved from Boca Raton, Florida, to uh, Plano, Texas, uh, and went to work. I can remember kissing her on the cheek and saying, I'll see you in about five years. I had to go back to work. And work I did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the, the checks were, uh, they wrote, uh, return to sender. The sender was making sure they took them for you so that you didn't receive them. 
Yeah, exactly. That's a terrible deal. And I know we've both heard some horror stories about guys that partner in these companies and just get drained of everything, whether it's, you know, guys that are investing money or guys that are supposed to be operational partners and never see the money. That's that's terrible. So you got a couple of kids, your wife's upset, which I know that feeling. Um, what, what do you do now? What was your next move after that? Well, I went in and took over the company. That was step one. I was the majority owner. And um, we went through a lot of trials and tribulations. It was very tough being a small operator in a big city of Dallas. And uh, by 2003, I had lost everything. I, I couldn't even pay my mortgage because I didn't take a salary. So I was living off my money. And, and my wife was a stay-at-home mom. And um, I made a couple of business decisions that people said would not work. Uh, and they did. And um, Make sure I had a lawyer vet them because it's healthcare and you got to be a little careful how you do things in healthcare sometimes. And uh, the next month there was $9,000 in the bank. I split with my partners. And then the next month there was $12,000 in the bank. I split with my partners. And I don't know, within three or four years, if, if, if there wasn't a million dollars a month coming in the door, we'd want to know why. And so we sort of built our medical imaging company. And then I think one of the interesting lessons I learned was looking at our expenses and what expenses could I turn into revenue streams. And I know that sounds crazy, but I'm paying people to fix my machines. I'm paying contractors. And so we set up our own service company. So we were able to hire mechanics, service our own medical equipment. And then we started servicing other people's equipment. Billing company, we outsourced our billing. We bought the billing company, brought it in-house, did all of our own billing, which cut the expense, but then we started outsourcing billing. Medical staffing, same thing. We started on medical staffing company. So we really looked at expenses and tried to create revenue streams. And then the second thing we did was we looked at our client base. And, you know, our client base is kind of multiple people. Our client base is the physician. That's the primary guy. Uh, our, the client base is the little girl in his office that schedules the patients. And then our other client is obviously the patient that we have to take care of. Uh, and, and we realized that pain management doctors were sending us a lot of patients. And so met with a few of them and realized that they didn't really have a place they could do injections other than in their office or in a hospital. And so we set up something called a pain procedure center joint ventured with the doctors because we could do that because we weren't doing Medicare. And um, boom, it took off also. And at, at one point we had, uh, and then we turned them into surgery centers eventually. We had 11 surgery centers with 53 partners, pain doctors all over the state. So we're living a great life. It's 2012. You know, We've got 28 imaging centers. We've got 11 surgery centers. We delved into toxicology a little bit, uh, built two of those, sold them. Um, life was pretty good. And then, then you had those things that hit you in life that you don't see coming. And I don't know if you want me to go into the personal side of the story, but it's, uh, it's, uh, you're, you're, it kind of reminded me of when I got fired in, in, in Dallas, because it caught me by surprise. I'm on a plane with my wife, Marcia, and, Life is great, and we're first class, and we're drinking a cocktail, and we've just come from the big meeting, radiology show, 
where I hosted my own dinner and everything. And it's one of those times, once again, you're thinking you're, you know, you're the man. Uh, and then she says to me, I've got a stomach ache. Can we stop at the local doctor? And we land and we do. And 24 hours later, confirmed diagnosis of stage four pancreatic cancer. Didn't see it coming. Caught us completely by surprise. Uh, she had six months to live. And um, nothing like having to tell your wife that she has pancreatic cancer because I had to tell her because the doctors called me. And uh, we went all over the world looking for answers, and we ended up at MD Anderson uh, and made every 10-day trips to MD Anderson. I, at that point, turned the company over to the team. They were running it, just keeping me informed. And on uh, May 20th, they dismissed her from MD Anderson and uh, gave her 30 days to live. And on the drive home, I got a really bad pain in my back, and I said, I cannot believe I have a kidney stone right now. So I took some of her pain medicine, got her back home, put her to bed, went to the hospital. And I didn't have a kidney stone. had a, a tumor the size of a baseball, and I had a confirmed stage 3 renal cancer. So I just went home, sat in my driveway, and wondering what the hell was happening. You know, we're, we're achieving our financial goals, and now my family's completely dis disrupted. I'm worried about my boys. Got to set up hospice care for her, so I'm doing that. While at the same time trying to get myself treated, uh, they wanted to do radiation to try to shrink the tumor and, and save the kidney. And I just said, no, just cut me open and gut me. And so they did. And uh, took the kidney, took the tumor, took some other stuff. Uh, walked out of the hospital in uh, 19 hours to go home to take care of her. She made it uh, six more days and uh, passed away at our house. Uh, it was a tough time really tough time and the one thing i learned is that having a few dollars in your pocket makes the tough times a little easier because we could stay at nice hotels on our travels and now i could take the summer off with my boys and my boys and i just travel the whole summer just all over the place just trying to you know bring it back to normal get connected and um, then that fall i went back to work a single dad raising two little boys yeah, your entire world is flipped upside down. Uh, wow. Wow. Completely. Yeah, just, I couldn't even imagine, couldn't even fathom having that feeling of, you know, all your financial goals are being met. And it, obviously, it seems like it never stops. As, as business owners, we're all thinking about, you know, whatever it is. Maybe it's, the, you know, hiring people, training people, your accounting staff, money, invoices, outstanding. And then, you know, you have to go home and still be the dad and be the husband and be the spouse. and that's terrible. So you're meeting all of these goals and then your entire world is flipped upside down. Um, not only with the, your wife's situation, but with yours. Um, uh, I couldn't imagine that. Yeah, it, it, it was an interesting time in my life, probably the most uh, toughest time. It also taught me a lot of lessons. You know, it taught me, it changed some of my thought process going forward. I started thinking more about exits than I ever had thought before. Um, I thought more about legacy and, and my children and really just, just how do I structure this so that I could be a single dad, keep growing the company, uh, and, you know, manage to do it, but also recognize that I either needed to create a vehicle that was a cash cow that didn't need me so I could go do some other stuff because I still wanted to be an entrepreneur or I had to exit. 
And so uh, in 2017, uh, we exited. Uh, Preferred Imaging was the name of it. Um, it's public knowledge for about $94 million. So it wasn't a bad payday with, you know, given what we've been doing. And we exited the pain company, uh, a surgery center at a time, because you kind of sell them to hospital systems. So we did all of that. Uh, and, and that kind of was sort of the end of my medical career about 2019. Yeah, that was something I know that you and I have talked about numerous times is starting, you know, A, B, C, D, E, having the the exit in mind. And and obviously, I've shared that with you, especially with having my company here, um, you know, truckman.com. That's that was really one big thing where I feel like as entrepreneurs, usually well, not just as entrepreneurs, but as as people, when times get tough and when we don't know what to do, we go back to our habits and obviously you hear everybody talk about that is, is when things get bad, we fall back to our habits. We fall back to the things that make us feel comfortable. So, you know, that brings up a great point. What are some of the ways in either companies you've invested in and conversations you've had or companies that you've started yourself? Uh, what are some ways to brainstorm ideas? Number one, but number two, how do you brainstorm ideas that will allow you an exit? Because I know in my situation, I started this company because I saw the technology side of it to buy semi-trucks completely online. But our downfall was I didn't know who I was going to sell to. It took me some time to figure out possible avenues, but there was a lot of different things that I was unaware of, what financial commitments I needed to meet, who was I going to have sell the company, et cetera, et cetera. So um, kind of on that ground level, what are some ways that you can come up with ideas and then also put an exit behind it that makes sense? Yeah, well, you, you you said the words A, B, C, D, E for exit that you and I have talked about before. And so, you know, one of the first things I look at in a deal is, okay, what's the exit going to look like? Who's buying? Who are the buyers? Is it strategic buyers? Is it private equity buyers? Family office? I mean, who are the buyers for this type of business? Two, what's the competition look like? I don't mind competition for the record, particularly if you're creating a brand or, you know, you, you know, you, you're going to get your piece of the action. I don't want too much competition, but I do look at that. So I start working backwards in my thought process now. And then I bounce the idea by other people. Call up Zach and go, hey, what do you think about this idea? Someone's presenting it to me. And then third, you know, I, I and I'm in a different world now because, as you know, I went from the medical world into the franchise world. And so now I, I, I do that, and then I go to the franchisor because in the franchise world, that's your success is highly dependent upon brand awareness. And, you know, we talk about, you know, everybody knows what Weight Watchers is. Everybody knows what Orange Theory Fitness is. But I can tell you in 2013, nobody knew what Orange Theory Fitness was. But they did a great job of creating a brand. And so – I got to work backwards in that respect. Yeah. So having your buyer in mind, uh, having your competition, and then obviously talking to somebody that you you trust that would give you valuable insight, some ways to, to put together an idea. Um, what about those those people? In, and obviously you and I have talked about this also, but what about the entrepreneurs, the people that are passionate, right? And and I know me personally here lately, I've had to pull the passion out of some of the other business ideas that I want to do. But if if, if somebody says, hey, I'm passionate on creating this company, uh, I feel like the only thing they have truly to work towards is if they're passionate about their company, they're going to have to meet some sort of 
financial metrics at some point if they're going to borrow money. What do you say to that person if, if that's what they're following and they want to do this the rest of their life? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not a person that's necessarily a fan of following your passion. I'm passionate about fishing, but I'm not going to make a living at it. I'm passionate about golfing, but I'm terrible. So it doesn't mean you can't be passionate about business. I think sometimes the context of the business, they don't look at it deep enough because they're so excited. They're so passionate about it. I'm going to get into the you know five-hour energy space, and, and I've got a new product I'm going to make. And I'm going to bring that to market. Well, you're never going to be five-hour energy. You're just not. There are two out there. So it's really balancing that, that desire to do something you want to do with that desire to do something that's going to be a successful business. And so a lot of times I'll look at things. I never thought Orange Series Fitness, which is one of the things I did, was something I would do. I, I personally don't like boutique fitness. I don't do workouts with groups. I like putting on my headphones and going to the gym and being by myself. So I wasn't passionate about that concept, but I was passionate about that brand and what they were doing, and I knew they were going to go somewhere with it. Same thing with the latest one, Sinhound, you know real passionate about it right now. So it's a, it's a balancing act. I wish I had a better answer for you, but I think some people chase their passion too hard and, and don't look at the business itself. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you're, when you're, your profit loss and your balance sheet is showing you negative numbers or numbers that are significantly lower than maybe your competition or, or some of the other entrepreneurs, um, that's probably a time you need to look in the mirror and, you know, I've thought about it and thought about it. And obviously I'm kind of in the midst of trying to create another company right now <clears throat> just because we're seeing so much, um, I wouldn't say volatility, but it's, there's such a large decrease in the trucking industry, not only with freight rates, but with prices of, of used trucks um, and new truck availability. And I talked about this on the, the podcast, the Truck Fin podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, but we had a situation where last March there was uh, 8,000 trucks available to the retail public for everybody to buy, whether new and used. And then we fast forward to March this year, and there's triple that amount. Wow. I think there's 21,000. So obviously, when you take what we do, and I guess the nicest way to put it is we're a broker. We are buying trucks from the general public, and then we sell them uh, back to our dealer partners you have a lot of different variables. You have things like rely on customers inbound to buy their trucks. Number two, you have to hope that the condition is right to buy them. Number three, you have to hope that if they have a payoff, you're getting the title on time. And then number four, you have to turn around and sell that truck. And there's a lot of different things that I've tried to tackle within that business. And, and I think at some point coming from a trucking background, I'm kind of now we're like, man, maybe I want to step back. Maybe I want to look at, at exiting this company. Uh, which may very well be something that I'll do here in the coming months, hopefully. But with that being said, I, now that I'm kind of in, in the realm of starting another company, what are a few key things that you would do if you had to start a new company and, and say you had a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank that you were able to start a company with, which is not, uh, it's not feasible for most people, but occasionally some business owners have maybe a a couple hundred thousand dollars to go out and start a new venture. What would you do? Yeah, it's interesting because it's it's a couple hundred thousand sounds like a lot, but but I worry a little bit about is it enough? And it depends on the business model. If you're you're building popsicle stands, cool. Mm -hmm. 
if, if you're doing MRI centers that cost $3 million each to build, you probably need a lot bigger budget than that. Mm-hmm. So, so one, I would definitely look at the amount of money I have available and what's it, you know, what's my pro forma look like? So many people forget to do pro formas, do a pro forma, put this on a spreadsheet, understand what the dollars are going to look like. Make sure you got enough. If you don't have enough, you have two options. You go borrow more money or you got to find investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm a borrowing guy. I don't have a lot of investors, but you know, borrowing has its risk. I was going to say, so if you're starting a new company, are there any certain industries that you're looking into, whether it's, you know, oil and gas, the tech industry, the animal space, what is it? Is there anything particular that you look at or do you just look at industries that you are somewhat familiar with or possibly worked with in the past? Obviously, the MRI company related off of your prior experience. Uh, you mentioned Orange Theory Fitness. For those of you that, that don't know, you had 33? 30, yeah, we... I'll give you that quick side story too, because it's kind of cute. I was uh, a single dad raising two kids, and I went and decided that a guy that lived a few blocks from Jerry Jones and you know drove a nice car and had a nice house probably shouldn't do the the go to the bar scene and do all the dating things. So I went on Match dot com and uh, had what I call my first first date in twenty two years, and it was my last first date for the rest of my life. I met Kathy. And uh, we were in South Florida. A couple of years later, she she was living in her house. I was still raising my boys. And a buddy we were having dinner with said, hey, have you ever been to an Orange Theory Fitness uh, workout? And I won't say what I said, but I said, what the blankety blank is Orange Theory Fitness? And uh, the, the next day, and this, is, this gets into the passion thing. The next day, I took the class. And you know what? It was all right. It was fun class to take. But the trainer... She bled orange. I had not seen someone with that much passion for a business. And that's really what caught my attention was not the workout was an employee of this franchise had this much passion for her company. And I thought, okay, that's a good culture. That's something to look into. Uh, and initially we bought three franchises. Uh, Kathy quit her job and was running those three franchises. And then orange theory called and, and said, Hey, we're trying to sell bigger territories. And, we ended up buying North Texas and put together an infrastructure and a team. And by the time we finished, we had, you know, 300 employees and uh, a nice bottom line. And private equity was actively looking at these deals. In fact, we had one of the craziest ones. We hired Fifth Thirds Bank to take us to market after five years because there you go, ABCDE exit. Yeah, yeah. And, and did that, and we had a seventy-inch parties. We had thirty-six letters of intent. I'd never seen anything like it personally. Never seen the multiples like it before. It was such a hot, hot, hot product. And so we packaged it all up. We merged it with a couple of the territories in the area to make it bigger, and uh, sold it to a private equity group on uh, December the ninth of two thousand nineteen, which, for the record, was three months before COVID hit, and. Uh, I had no, I planned the exit. I had no clue about COVID. No clue whatsoever. It was, it was unbelievable. Lucky timing. That's incredible. So Orange Theory, uh, obviously I know there's one here. They're everywhere. I know they're Fort Worth, Dallas. um, Some out in East Texas. I'll see them when I go fish out there, but that's incredible to especially see people with a passion that are, 
you know, people that, that have the passion are, are driving the customer force and the customer base when they come in. And, uh, you know, I'll go work out at Anytime Fitness and you hardly ever see anybody there, whether it's the, the one here in, in, in Fort Worth or, you know, you travel and you see them across the nation. Mm-hmm. But uh, even some of those smaller, you know, little franchise uh, places, whether it's a little restaurant or a tanning salon or whatever, when you find those people, it's hard to look past and you just have a good feeling. You say, you know what, like that person genuinely enjoys their job. But um, it, that that really makes me think uh, having people that are passionate about your brand is such a huge deal. And you mentioned a, a really interesting thing too, is, is having a team behind you and having 300 people. So if somebody's possibly getting started or maybe they have a company now, I, I know we've especially faced it after the whole COVID thing. And even today we're still hiring. Um, did you have somebody over your, your, your HR department? Where were you able to find somebody that could manage to put together a team, but not only a team with people that were capable of doing the job that stayed? Yeah, you know, I always had a for, and I've done uh, fourteen companies. I've exited eight of them. Every company, you know, I have a president of that company. And again, I'm older, and I'm a little bit for position. And when I'm starting out, if I'm starting out, I'm the president. But but a lot of a lot of people, what I see, sometimes they take money off the table too quick, and they don't build that infrastructure. Now, again, if you're doing a mom and pop tanning salon, for lack of a better example. And you're going to work it. You're the manager of it. You're going to make $75,000 a year. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're an entrepreneur that wants the bigger picture, then you've got to start investing in your infrastructure. You need a CFO. You need a president. Unless you're the president. You need an HR director. You need a marketing director. And and that's overhead. So, you know, in the case of my latest deal I'm doing, we figured out the first three locations. Once they're profitable, that's just simply going to pay our overhead. We won't make any money off the first three locations because we're setting up that much infrastructure. But we're also building 25 locations. So, you know, we need that in place to help us do that faster. Uh, and it was the yeah. same with Orange Theory. It grew, grew. We just kept adding folks as we needed them. And then we went from, you know, the one manager of the gyms to, then we had two managers and five managers. We kind of allocated about five gyms per regional manager, and then each gym had a manager. And, and and all the employees stayed with the deal but me. So once we sold it, they all had jobs. Uh, I had four of them that had equity in the company. I let them have equity. So they also got nice little checks. Um, it worked out well. Yeah. Who would you say is the most important person in the first three hires that you make? Who were the first three people that you were hire if you were to start a new company today? Well, today the first person I'm going to hire is the person that's going to run the company because I'm I'm not running companies now. I'm I'm more in the advisor stage, more in the the money stage, more in the exit stage. So my first person is, is okay. Who can do this? Uh, and secondary to that, it boy it tends to be marketing. You know, you're bringing a brand to market. And again, it's, it depends on what you're doing. I'm in the franchise world now. So I'm doing new franchises. So I'm having to help the franchise or bring that brand to market. So, you know, we immediately hired a PR firm. We immediately hired a digital marketing firm. We immediately uh, hired someone to be over all that. And that's overhead. It costs you money. Mm. But, 
you know, again, I, as I mentioned, it'll take three to, to, to pay the overhead. And then at that point we'll start making money eventually. That's a, uh, it is, I feel like marketing is probably what I would say, just cause uh, you know, I've always been taught uh, if, if nobody knows you, nobody's going to buy from you. And obviously with all the social media platforms we have now, the Instagram, the Facebook, the TikToks, the whatever, there's, there's so much availability in that, in that marketing space. So that's, um, having somebody to run the company, I feel like is a really huge deal. And that's, that's something that I struggle with at first, you know, I feel like most days I'm still running the company, but really like that first two years, then you have to branch off and try to find like a director of operations. And obviously I'm a lot younger, but now I'm coming to the point now where I'm coming up on, I'll be 30 next year. I'm really asking myself, Hey, what does this look like long-term? And and I did exactly what you said. It it, it wasn't with a, with a, um, uh, Excel spreadsheet. It was just a piece of paper. And I wrote down, you know, where's our income at now? Where was our income the year before? What are we planning for the next year? And how much money do I want to make? And if I want to sell this, uh, what financial uh, metrics do I need to hit? Because that's a huge thing that I think a lot of people overlook. And I've never sold a company, but all the research that I've done, especially in this stage, we've kind of been labeled a, a tech company and we're not really a SaaS company because we don't really offer a service, but we're in that tech space. So we're not a semi-truck dealership, but we're not a SaaS company. And it's it's hard to um, research and, and find multiples and find what kind of EBITDA a company wants. And uh, I talked to a company a couple of days ago that said, yeah, we'll just put you on every business for sale website out there. And when somebody contacts us, we'll work it. Uh, and I said, no, I'm probably not interested in that. <laughs> so <laughs> right. um, what's your insight there? If, if if maybe you spend a couple of years and you're working and you're building a company, what metrics do you feel like are important for you to, to make an exit, I guess, in regards to, to financial metrics? Because it seems like that's what everybody looks at. Yeah, and it's interesting. I've learned a lot lately that there's, there's groups out there that look at the top line. There's groups that look at the bottom line. There's groups that look at the EBITDA. I learned a new term the other day of pro forma embedded EBITDA, which I'd never heard of before, uh, that they were looking at. And, and what that is, is very simple. You've got 10 locations, but you've got three more leases signed. They they literally would let you pro forma those lease locations for, for a two-year pro forma and add that to the bottom line. It was kind of interesting to see them do that. Uh, I'd never done that in my life where someone's letting me EBITDA uh, pro forma out of, of an office space is nothing in it. So, so, so I look at some of that. I think that one of the other things I've, I've figured out, if you're big enough, is that it's hard to do the sale yourself. So the, the last three deals I've done, I've had an investment banker in the middle. Yes, it costs money, but they, they get to be the bad guy. They get to do the hardcore negotiating. I get to keep the relationship with the potential buyer and, and do more of the, the passive, you know, negotiating. So I really like having that third party negotiator in my last three deals made a, I think it made a huge difference. Really? And that was just, who just say fifth third bank, one of the investment the, bankers. The, the third was one of them. When I, when I did, um, that was with Lawrence there. When I did my imaging center, there was a guy out of Atlanta that, that that's what he does. And I hired him. He's specifically in the radiology space. So he knew all the strategic buyers. Uh, that wasn't really a, a private equity kind of deal. That was more of a strategic deal. 
So it seems like there's a couple different metrics that people are looking at. You're doing top line revenue, bottom line revenue, EBITDA, um, stuff like that. I mean, are there any, and I don't know, because I feel like it's it's different with every company. Like I know uh, the guy that I talked to said, hey, if you guys are doing uh, bottom line revenue, uh, some net profit of 2 million plus, it's usually this multiple, or if you're doing 5 million plus, it's usually this multiple. Um, and I know a lot of that's tricky. I just don't know with the experience that you've had. I know sometimes a lot of business owners, especially like me, are just sitting, they're like, you know, we know what our balance sheet is and we know the kind of income that we've made. And we're just like, is this enough or am I wasting my time to be able to get the kind of exit that we want? Because I don't think that anybody would put in their time and say, <clears throat> okay, we've done $10 million in sales. We've netted $2 million after all expenses, et cetera, et cetera. Let's sell the company for two times more than we netted $4 million. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Somebody may do that. They may not. So what's your experience with that? Yeah, my experience has been it's kind of an industry-driven number, and it's also been industry-driven what number they're looking at. I mean, I heard recently uh, in some SaaS companies that people were looking at the top line, and I was trying to figure out why they looked at the top line, and they're explaining to me that there's just not a lot of overhead in those type of companies sometimes. A lot of it's IT, a lot of it's this. Um, but then you turn around one that's labor-intensive, you know, with, with high, but um, well, we use MRI centers, $3 million. You're spending a million and a half on a machine. You know, you, you, nobody's going to look at the top line there. They want to know what you make at the end of the day. Because you got, you know, 10 employees, a really expensive machine that still has debt on it. And so those are kind of driven down toward the EBITDA number. So I think it varies, and I don't think there's any magic answer to it. Uh, I've exited, you know, a five multiple. I've exited a 16 multiple. So they just kind of vary depending on the industry. So it's pretty much all industry driven. I think I personally, my experience has been it's industry driven. You know, you want to get in the medical imaging business now, they're doing four and five multiples. That's all. Because there's an imaging center on every corner. Um, the beverage space, which I'm in in another deal. I mean, one of the companies just sold at a 24 multiple. So oh. so I thought, wow, that's a good company to get into. Now I'm a silent investor in that company, but hopefully it gets a 24 multiple when it exits. Uh, and and then this, this scent hound thing that we're doing now, which is our latest franchise, we have uh, 25 licenses in Dallas. Uh, we just opened our second store, about to open our third store. That's when I mentioned earlier, we'll get our overhead covered at that point, and then we'll start making money and already thinking about the exit, and that'll definitely be a, a private equity play and probably be something along the lines uh, when the when the franchisor, because people forget when you're a franchisee, you kind of have a supervisor called the franchisor, yeah. and I like to get to know them and find out their exit plans and those sort of things, but but. I think these scent hounds are going to exit for pretty big multiples. We'll see. Yeah. And what is scent hound for those so, who aren't familiar? I'm sorry. Scent hound was something we discovered uh, last uh, fall. It is a uh, pet health, wellness, and grooming franchise. Uh, it's new. Uh, what I liked about it was a couple of things. Uh, one, my family are animal lovers, dog lovers, so that didn't hurt. Two, there seems to be a huge, huge shortage of groomers right now. 
that it, when I talk to people, they go, yeah, I have to register, you know, plan a month ahead of time to get my dog's haircut. Uh, and then I also found out that one of the founders of Orange Theory Fitness was a big investor behind this company. That caught my attention. So I flew to Florida, met with them, had a great infrastructure set up, reminded me so much of, of Orange Theory, how they had theirs set up. And um, they were new, which is important too. I, I don't, I'm not going to look at Taco Bell franchises. I need to find something new. I need to look at territories, not franchises. So we looked at the Dallas territory. There was nothing there but one. And we bought them since then. Uh, and so we were able to sit with the franchise or negotiate a good bit of the Dallas market. Uh, and we like, we just like the model, but I like the exit model. I like the concept of the need for it. Now it's got some negatives to it as well. It's a, a high turnover business. So, you know, we've, we, we will probably hire our first HR director this fall. Once we get about our third or fourth store open, because we'll have a lot of turnover uh, in, in that particular space, there appears to be. I'm still learning, and uh, yeah, you know, we've already brought on our controller. We've got Jeff as the president. We've got our first regional operations manager because he's primarily focused on development, so she's focused on the operations. Um, so that's kind of our initial infrastructure to get this thing started. That's exciting. And I know you've got a lot of different companies going on, which we won't get into all of them, but I know you and I have, have talked about them. And it, that was something that, that I wanted to ask you was obviously um, I know as, as business owners, we kind of sit back and we ask ourselves, no matter where we're at, uh, whether I'm traveling on a plane or I'm driving on the highway, I feel like in my mind and, and some other people may feel the same way, but we're consistently thinking about different revenue, whether we can increase the revenue Maybe uh, we can put out a marketing spin that will do this, or maybe we can go and target these customers and we're able to obtain that revenue. Um, I guess kind of talk to maybe not so much as what you're doing in a day, but maybe some of your mindset and kind of how you structure your life as to going into these companies, making them successful and exiting, or you know, what kind of thoughts do you have when you're like, man, maybe I could do this and it would add extra income or you know, how do you contain all those thoughts? Because some days I feel like it's just a 24-hour-a-day rodeo. Like, it never stops. Like, I wake up at 4 in the morning, and I'm like, man, maybe we could do this, and I'd make more revenue. So what does your day look like? Or, or excuse me, what does what your life and mindset look like to, to control some of that? Yeah, it, it's funny because I'm, I'm getting fussed at lately by my wife because I'm working all the time. Uh, I'm in, in Cabo, my house in Cabo, and I'm sitting in front of a computer, and I'll be here most of the day. Uh, we'll, we'll get to sneak out about four thirty and play a nine holes of golf. Uh, but I don't stop thinking. I, I think that's, that's what separates the successful, good entrepreneurs that you just don't stop thinking and you're thinking about, okay, send hound. How do I increase the customer base? Cause it's a new concept. How do I get the brand awareness? Well, this morning I just had an article released in the Dallas business journal. So cool. That'll help with brand awareness. You know, we, we, so I'm always thinking about how do I increase the customer base of a new idea? And, and where can I introduce that idea? Okay, well, they do a, they do a dog parade in McKinney, Texas. Guess what? I'm going to have a booth there, a team there working it, passing out brochures, 
not just passing out brochures for clients, but passing out brochures for employees. Because mm. I know people that are passionate about dogs. Some of them work in that industry. So, so we're always, always, always thinking about how to increase revenue, or in the case of a franchise, how to increase membership. Uh, and I don't stop thinking about it. It, 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 it. It's always something new, something different. And then you get lucky sometimes and you max out a store. So you can slow down a little bit at that store. You know, but you can only do so many dogs. You can only do so many Orange Theory Fitness classes during a 24-hour period. So, so our goal is to get to that level with as many locations as we can. And, and, and then you can monitor it, slow down a little bit, make sure that the attrition rate's not too high, replace that attrition rate, you know, with new, new clients. What do you what do you think are a few things that, that new business owners overlook when they start a company? I'll tell you there's one that, that that it would take us an hour to talk about, but I'm so passionate about it. They completely overlook how they structure their company and not only their company, but how they structure their own personal estate. Listen, I never thought I would have giant exit like I had. But when I die People forget about the state tax. So you got $100 million in the bank and you kick the bucket if you haven't planned it, $40 million of that's going back to the government. So your heirs may not end up with a lot of liquidity. They may end up with some hard assets. They may end up with some business investments, but they take their liquidity to pay that tax. And so I talk to people about, look, it's very simple. You start with an LLC, create some asset protection for yourself. I have mine owned by a family limited partnership. I have a general partner that's an attorney. So he owns 1% of the company. In the operating agreement, he gets no revenue, no losses. He gets a fee paid to him. But I know in legal tense, as the 99% limited partner, I don't really have a say in the vote, in the thing he does. So if something bad happens, he can be the bad guy and say no, and not me. Well, then I learned later on that I don't need to personally own 99%. I need that owned by a 678 trust so that an attorney said this to me once in 2004. He said, the greatest thing in life is owning nothing and using everything. And that's where I'm at in my life. I don't personally own a, I own a fancy car and a house, and that's it. Everything else has gone through the stream. And we have a saying at my family, they don't teach you that at Jones County Junior College where I went because they don't teach you this stuff at Jones County Junior College. They don't teach you this stuff at SMU. They don't teach you that, hey, wait, think 50 years down the road when you've, when you've made it. What happens? So I'm passionate about what entrepreneurs talking about. Asset protection first, then estate planning because you just don't know maybe just maybe you hit the home run. And so that's really yeah, and something you find I'm yourself in that. Yeah, and then you find yourself in that emergency situation where, you know, something bad does happen. You, you fall off a mountain or, you know, you're traveling and, and you get some, uh, you know, god-awful sickness. And before you know it, it's you're on the phone trying to plan out a funeral and you were just 10 days ago you left to go on vacation. So that's really interesting that you bring that up because that is something that a lot of people – uh, overlook. And I know even myself, um, 
I overlooked it there for a while and finally got a hold of our business lawyer and said, hey, what are some things that I can do? And uh, exactly what you said. He said, hey, you need to set up a trust. You need to make sure that both your boys, um, you know, have college plans and both your boys have the access to assets and everything is, is titled and documented in the correct manners because, you know, the stat of the average American has less than $400 in their bank account for an emergency at any given time still stands. But even more so that, what is it, less than 10% of America has over $400,000 in annual income. That's total income and wealth. You have to think about it. If, if you're in that top 5% or even that top 2 or 1%, you have a lot more on the line than so many other people. And you have to legally make sure that all of it's documented correctly so that if something does happen, you're covered. Exactly. And throwing one more tiny comment, a key man life insurance. It's not expensive when you're younger. And... You know, you don't know. You hit a tree, you hit a truck, you dump in a ditch. You never know what happens in life. I certainly was surprised about how life changes. And and so, you know, I'm a big fan also of when you're younger, getting the key man life insurance so that if something happens to you, if you've got business partners, it, I have the business fund and it, and it buys me out of the business and my kids get the money or my heirs get the money. Uh, so a lot of times people don't think about that. Okay, well, I've got this successful business going. We're making $6 million a year. I've got a business partner. I die. How's he going to buy me out? You know, so yeah. key man life insurance. I, I did that with preferred imaging. I, I had $25 million in key man life on me. Thank goodness I didn't need to use it, but we had it there just in case. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, if something can happen, it will happen at some point, right? It can happen. It usually happens, and then you get through it and keep going. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's incredible. So your book's out on Amazon, uh, and actually, it, where 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 all is it available? I guess I'll let you tell it. Yeah, so the book is called Redneck Resilience: A Country Boy's Journey to Prosperity, and it really every chapter is either a life lesson or a business lesson, and it it, it tells way more detail than we've talked about today about my story, and you know the tragedies as well as the, the, the luck and the, and luck plays a big factor in everything. Um, for the record, I find the harder I work, the luckier I get. Uh, but, but, you know, that's called redneck resilience. It's on Amazon. I made Amazon bestseller list uh, on three different categories. So that was kind of cool. And then you can get it at Barnes and Noble. You can get it at books a million. Uh, I have a website you can go to and get it. So, there's all sorts of different ways to get it. It's a fun little read, about a three and a half to four hour read. And it, 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 most people tell me it, it reads like I talk. So there'll be a few four letter words in it and uh, there'll be, a, uh, you know, some humor in it. Uh, but, yeah. but most people tend to like it. Yeah, I know when I read it, I, I, I thought to myself, man, this, this guy sounds a, a lot like me. And, and maybe it's the other way around. Maybe I'm a, a lot like you. But um you know, I've shared this a few times and we've got some uh, content that'll be put out on the social media pages and our website. But I feel like you and I correspond so closely with each other because I grew up from a poverty background, from having a single mother. I grew up in East Fort Worth um, in a trailer and just having, you know, the, the memories and every now and then you're just driving somewhere and you're going down the highway and you just, you have a memory. Something that you see reminds you of living in a trailer and having a single mother 
and living on that $30,000 income that she had to take care of two kids just really puts you over the edge and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to work harder because I know the harder that I work and the more time that I put into something that is uh, benefiting me long term, the luckier you do get. So um, the book really related to me, and, and I encourage all of you, if you haven't read it, uh, read it. Um, so as we wrap up here, I have one last question. What advice would you look back on today and give your 25-year-old self? You know, I, I think there's, there's probably a couple of things. Uh, one, I, I might have jumped sooner. I, I think I'd look back. But I, I learned so much along the way. Again, that they didn't teach me that at Johns County Junior College. I learned so much through that school of hard knocks. So sometimes they go, well, I wish I had jumped earlier. I wish I hadn't have jumped earlier. Uh, the thing we talked about, about structuring your business the right way. I so wish I had structured it the right way in the beginning. Because it was very, it took me nine years to restructure my companies so that I fell into that estate tax free area where I fell into that I didn't own anything. Uh, and, and so if you did the beginning, it saves you that hassle. It saves you a bunch load of attorney fees, a bunch load of attorney fees. Uh, so I would definitely encourage young entrepreneurs look at your infrastructure, look at the structure of your business. Everybody goes, oh, I got an LLC. Well, I'm going to tell you something. It's not enough. Think bigger picture. Think longer term. Where am I going to be in 20 years? Where am I going to be in 30 years? What about my children? What about my heirs? I guess that's that's the really the, the advice I'd give. And then we've talked about not necessarily chasing your passion. And I th mm -hmm. think that some people make that mistake and they go out and chase something that they're really cool about and Sometimes that doesn't work. I want the I want the business to be the passion. Well, th those are huge things, huge things. Because just like we talked about, the people overlook those. Uh, they, they overlook the, the planning. They overlook the long term. They overlook if something happens to me. But um, I'll end on this: it, if a business owner, maybe he goes out or she goes out and, and follows their passion, or maybe they have a business um, now that is failing. And obviously, we're recording this, and it's. Uh, July 2023, and all the things are going on. You have the administration, you have the uh, interest rates, you have inflation, et cetera, et cetera. At what point would you now look in your mind and say, um, hey, it's probably time to cut the cord and move on to something else? Because I know that's that's something that a couple of people reached out to me, and they're like, man, here's what I'm doing right now, and it's just not working. So what point would you be like, you know what, I'm just going to cut the cord or, or maybe I need to change what I'm doing? Yeah, you know, that, that's, that's, you know, my definition of resilience is getting knocked down and getting back up and finding a different path. A lot of people think it's just getting knocked down, getting back up. And when you have those type of opportunities, you get knocked down, you get back up, you do the same thing again, you get knocked down again, and people get stuck in that cycle. And, and at some point, you have to be willing to let go. You have to acknowledge your failures. You have to acknowledge your mistakes. And then you have to pick that new path. And for me, that that's happened a few times in my life where I just went, this is just not working. I got to stop doing it. But toxicology labs is a great example. We tried it for two years. Didn't like the business. Didn't like where it was going from a legal perspective. Got out of it. Bailed on it. Had we stayed in it, could we have grown it? Yeah, but the risk just wasn't worth the reward. That's incredible advice. Well, 
appreciate you uh, taking time out of your Cabo uh, vacation. I call it vacation, but you live there. I appreciate you taking time to talk with me. I'm going to head to uh, Colorado on Sunday, so I'm going to try to turn my mind off for a little bit and uh, figure out some of my next moves. But appreciate your time greatly, James. Time you want to chat, just let me know. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. All right. Take care, buddy. Thanks so much for listening to the Real Raw Relatable Podcast. Please check us out on all the major podcast networks and be sure to subscribe and tell your friends.